Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. We all have busy lives these days, and we don't want to waste a day recovering after a night out. That's why Zbiotics is the answer we've all been looking for. Their probiotic was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Pre-alcohol produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. This is a proactive solution that wards off feeling miserable the next day instead of a reactive approach like drinking electrolytes or eating greasy food. Enhance your mornings with Zbiotics. Go to zbiotics.com/cbs to get 15% off your first order when you use code CBS at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So, if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/cbs and use the code CBS at checkout for 15% off. Thank you, Zbiotics, for sponsoring this episode and our good times. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week, we come to you from New York City, New York, and in particular, a legendary building now just reopened as the Knickerbocker Hotel. You can't come to a hotel like this knowing that it was originally opened in 1906 without the big H word, history. And, and, and to put that into context, you need a historian. And to do that for us, it's Betsy Bradley. How are you, Betsy? Hello. Happy to be here. So, I mean, there, the words John Jacob Astor come to mind. Um, and for those people who, who, who've studied their New York history and know about the history of the Waldorf Astoria, mm-hmm. and there was a hotel called the Astor as well, mm-hmm. right? Where does this fit in? This hotel was built by John Jacob Astor IV, who was the great-grandson of the original John Jacob Astor, who started the family empire. We still, many people still remember Brooke Astor, who only recently passed away. And that, At the ripe young age of? 103, uh, yeah, something yeah. like that. And that... that philanthropic dynasty uh, began with fur trading in the early 19th century. But by the time by the time John Jacob Astor IV was in the hotel business, uh, the Astor family name had been burnished to a, a very lustrous patina. It was a very, uh, very old New York kind of a name. And 1906, mm-hmm. they opened the hotel. Mm-hmm. How many rooms? 
I believe it was 500 rooms. At Which that time. was huge. It was huge. It was. Right. But they tried very hard to keep the prices down. They like to say that it was a, um, I think, a Fifth Avenue hotel at Broadway prices was the slogan that they used. Wow. And it wasn't even on Fifth Avenue. It wasn't even on Fifth <laughs> Avenue. The marketing, you know, we've all, New Yorkers have always been really good at marketing. And the name Knickerbocker? The name Knickerbocker is very dear to my heart. It was from Washington Irving's 1809 History of New York, which was a satirical history of the city told from the perspective of a Dutch-descended New Yorker who was really, really unhappy that Stuyvesant had handed the colony over to the Duke of York. And the name for Astor, for Jacob Astor IV, would have had a special resonance because his great-grandfather knew Washington Irving, and in fact, Irving wrote a whole book called Astoria about Astor's attempt to bring the fur trade across the Rocky Mountains. So it was really, it was a family name, you could say. Now, I grew up in New York. I'm born and raised in Manhattan. And of course, on the lower, on the, on the Upper East Side in the 90s, I grew up, you couldn't pass it without smelling it, the Knickerbocker Brewery. That's right. Yeah, the Ru- Rupert Ru- beer. Rupert Knickerbocker. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We had two beers in New York in those days, uh, that and Rheingold. Right. Right. Can you still sing the song? I can't sing the song. I can, I can. <laughs> My beer is Rheingold, the dry beer. Won't you try it whenever you buy beer? Okay, that's it. I like yeah. that. I wish there was a Knickerbocker song I could, I could sing. And could over the Knickerbocker Brewery was the 3rd Avenue L. Mm-hmm, it was the mm-hmm. elevated subway. Now that's gone. It's gone as well. The brewery is gone. And now you have Knickerbocker Towers there, which is you, really... You do, right? The yeah, Rupert Complex. Exactly. And I think one of the buildings is called, is called Knickerbocker. Exactly. And then on the Lower East Side, you have Knickerbocker Village, which was built by Fred French to be uh, kind of Mitchell Lama working class housing. And that's where Ethel and Julius Rosenberg lived before they were arrested and, and executed. I will tell you a great uh, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg story because they also had a summer place on Fire Island. I didn't know that. And one day... Uh, when people take the ferry boat to Fire Island, they're not usually wearing fedoras, jackets, ties, and and, and wingtip shoes. Mm-hmm. So you stand out like a sore thumb. Right. And one day I see all these guys wearing fedoras, wingtip shoes, and jackets and ties. That was the FBI. Wow. And they were coming up to dig up their backyard on Fire Island looking for That's secrets. Amazing. Yeah. That's yeah. a great story. Did and of course, I was too wagons? young. I was too young to know what was going on. So I asked my mom and dad, "What's going on?" They said, "Just keep walking." <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. fantastic. So let's go back to this Knickerbocker, because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the name has stayed. Yeah, yeah. The but, name. What, but, but, but it's opened in 1906, then it closed. It did. It didn't, It well, it barely survived John Jacob Astor IV's death on the, well, drown, death by drowning on the Titanic, which if you have to go, I think is a, is a pretty glamorous way to go. So basically he got upgraded and then he died. Exactly. <laughs> Just thought I'd mention that, yeah. Exactly. His son, Vincent Astor, uh, who would go on to marry uh, Brooke, uh, he took over the hotel but couldn't make a go of it, in part because Prohibition was just around the corner. The only part of the Knickerbocker Hotel that did make it, did eke its way into Prohibition times was the Knickerbocker Grill, which was the subterranean restaurant that you could get to via the subway platform. Right, and a speakeasy probably. Yes, it was. It was rated was it really? Many, it was. It was rated many times Yeah, for various, uh, they would find various bottles. The New York Times would report on the various things they had found that were that were illegal. Okay, so the hotel was only open for how many years? Golly, you're, I'm not a math But major. it didn't survive Prohibition. No, it didn't. So I'd say 15 years. All right, so then it closes. Mm-hmm. Then what happens to the building? The building becomes the headquarters of, of Newsweek, and it was massively gutted and, um, and transformed. Now I'm going to make you hold that thought for yes. a second, because for seven years, I was the West Coast correspondent you for really? Newsweek. So now you've got my attention. <laughs> we'll be back with more from Betsy Bradley, the historian right here in New York, about the Knickerbocker Hotel from the Knickerbocker Hotel when we return right after this. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now I radio clearance, over. That's clearance, over. Over. Roger. 
52 minutes after the hour, Peter Henry here with you from the Knickerbocker Hotel, where we've been talking with historian Betsy Bradley about the great stories uh, and, and, and some of the myths, too, about the Knickerbocker. When we last left off, you said that when it reopened, it reopened as the headquarters for Newsweek. It did. And the architect was actually an ancestor of Oliver and Adam Platt. So we, we keep all of these New York dynasties going as much as we possibly can. And Newsweek stayed here how many years? You know, I wish I could tell you that off the top of my head. Because I know that in the, in the 60s, they moved to 444 Madison Avenue right. on 49th and Madison. I was about to say probably about 50 years, but it sounds like more, more around 40 years. Yeah. And after that, the hotel had several different owners, including various... Um, Royal Middle Eastern, but was it, but was it a hotel? No, it was the, the, the property. I should say it was a property, right? But it still looked like a hotel from the yeah. outside. And so, up until recently, what was it? Not much of anything. It really wasn't. It was purchased uh, when I I wrote a book on the concept of Knickerbocker that was published in two thousand and nine. At that time, it had just been purchased by uh, the Sheikh of, of Dubai, I believe, and it was really nothing. It was a sort of a holding in a holding pattern, uh, waiting its its destiny, which is which is wonderfully come. Everybody says location, location, location. And for years, Times Square was not the location you wanted to be. That's right. So whoever was holding it waited. Mm -hmm. But you had to have a certain amount of vision to say, okay, let's go back to the way it was as a hotel. Mm -hmm. But you couldn't go back to the way it was. You had to you had to make it a, a current hotel, of course. You did. It can't be uh, a period piece. It's not. Uh, it's the the outside is obviously landmarked, but the interiors. You know, this is not a historic house museum. Uh, and people have asked me if there are ghosts in the hotel. Uh, of course there are. And, <laughs> you so. would know if you if you worked in the Newsweek building or if you spent some time. You might know better than I. Mm. But I I think it's um it is a challenge in New York, but in a way that represents the, New York in a nutshell. This sense of of something that. It looks like it's been here forever, but has really been changing and adapting as New Yorkers are so are so good at doing over time. From the historical perspective, mm -hmm. what's the biggest surprise about this hotel for people who don't know anything about it? Well, I love the subway entrance. I love the story of the subterranean subway tell me, entrance. Tell me. If you are on the shuttle platform, which is probably one of the ugliest, dingiest yeah. platforms. Let, let me explain for those people who don't know New York what the shuttle <laughs> means. If you're taking your train to Times Square Excuse me, I take that back. If you take the train to 42nd and Lexington, uh, like the 6th train, you can then get on the shuttle that'll take you across town mm -hmm. to Times Square. It only goes one stop. That's right. Right? It's the shortest, I mean, it's, the, it's the only stop, one stop subway line in, in New York, I believe, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But they haven't done anything to improve that no. ever. It's dark, it's dingy. That's right. Right? It just goes between Grand Central and Times, Times Square, Square, which I, I suppose are, are two very important locations, especially if you're visiting New York from out of town right. and you don't feel like walking. And if you're looking for dingy. Right. If you're looking for, if you're looking for the old New York, if you, you need a little it. taste of that pre-Giuliani New York, you can find it there. But there is this wonderful doorway. It doesn't look like much until you look up and you see this beautiful brass sign with raised lettering that just simply says Knickerbocker. And it's very cryptic. If you don't know what well, used to be there, yeah. you would never guess. But it is one of the only private, one of the only entrances to a private establishment in a, in a, a subway station. Now, what have they done inside the hotel to preserve that history? Inside the hotel, all of the history preservation is really happening through the energies of the staff because the hotel itself, because the interior spaces are so up-to-date, so contemporary, and so adapted to what a 21st century traveler needs. 
their interest is really in telling the story of the hotel through the staff, through the concierge, through the waiters. I've been asked, as well as an um, amazing muralist named Molly Crabapple, to... Molly what? Molly Crabapple. I love it. She's spectacular. To talk to the staff about this history, to really brief them so that if people ask them, what the heck is a Knickerbocker, they can say. At the same time, of course, they have a real, actual, genuine New York Nick heading up the fitness program, lest you forget that part of the Knickerbocker well, yeah, history. Let's, let's, let's talk about that. It's not the New York Knicks. It's the actual New York Knickerbockers. Right. That's right. the basketball it team. It is. It is. Right? Yes. That's and father, their first name. In fact, their mascot, mm-hmm. right, was what? Father Knickerbocker. <laughs> he looked a little bit like Peter Stuyvesant minus the peg leg. And in fact, the Westchester, their D team, their D league, still uses Father Knickerbocker as their mascot. Oh, he's been demoted to Westchester? He has. <laughs> he has. He, which is where He's no Irving longer 212. He's 914, ladies and gentlemen. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. But it, Father Knickerbocker, who was invented at the turn of the, of the 20th century, for various political reasons, he was a cartoonist dream. He was the first city mascot, and he was used to help usher in the era of consolidation when the various pieces of New York became the five boroughs that we know today. And Any attempt to get him back in the hotel? You know, I don't think there is. He's a little bit outdated. He, he looks like a caricature, so I, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm hoping okay, that they'll... I'll, I'll ask another question. Is yes. there an Astor Suite? That's a good question. I'm not sure I, I know yeah. the answer. I, I believe there is a, a Caruso suite ah. because Caruso was the most famous resident of the hotel. Much like Eloise, he lived at at the Knickerbocker as she lived at the plaza. And in fact, his, his daughter was born here. Really? Yes, and he serenaded uh, Times Square from his balcony. If you are sitting next to a small child or someone who is acting like a small child, please do us all a favor and put on your mask first. But I would walk by I said we're here from the Knickerbocker Hotel, a building that was first opened in 1906 by uh, John Jacob Astor. Lots of history here. But then what do you do when you want to completely renovate and restore a hotel that's basically more than 100 years old? Well, you bring in my next guest. Her name, Oslo Nake, who basically put this deal together from an interior design point of view, from an architectural point of view, dealing with all the different structural and space challenges that you'd have, right? Correct. So what did, what was your first challenge? Well, the first challenge was, um, you know, our aim to, to create the guest rooms was to uh, create them as sort of like oases. And as you know, being at Times Square, which is a very chaotic environment... Um, noise. Noise, exactly, was the first factor that we tried to actually handle. So how did you do it? Well, we have uh, double-glazed windows. Um, and also, I think, um, you know, working with a neutral palette that's very calming helps people to sort of transition into this um, space that feels definitely more like a refuge um, and helps them to take a brief respite from the chaos on the street and the hustle and bustle of New York City. So basically, you're, you're the port in the storm. Kind of, yes. We're the ones calming down the storm, basically, or okay. calming down the lake. So now let's talk about the footprint, because you have 330 rooms now. How many Correct. were there before? I think they had actually um, much more rooms. Um, so they, had to, sure so the they knocked out some yeah. walls? and They totally did. Actually, the rooms were much, much smaller back then. They had. Um, and so were the bathrooms. Exactly. So we ended up coming up with you know 85 or 89 different room types. As you know, you know, having a historic building kind of poses those challenges. So there are certain things you can't change. Exactly. Right? I mean, um, if you look at the footprint of the bathroom, it's very difficult to change the plumbing. 
Exactly. So what or did you the do? structural composition of the building. Yeah. So what did you do with the bathrooms? Because I judge a hotel by the bathroom first, because you spend more waking hours in your hotel bathroom than you spend in any other room in the hotel. So if the bathroom works, I'm loving the hotel. Yeah, I would say this is where actually our foundation in residential design comes into play. Our company was founded as a platform to design residences. So we know how to approach homes um, as spaces that would accommodate daily activities. I think that was the, the biggest compliment that we had on the project. And actually, we feel like the bathrooms are quite generously sized. So are the rooms. I think um, also that was sort of the advantage of working with a historic building is that you can't necessarily create these typical modules. So every room tends to differ a little bit, and that's why we ended up, um, you know, coming up with all the custom furniture, custom built-in millwork that had to be customized per the room type. So this is not a cookie-cutter hotel. Not at all. You know, there. I love when you go to big, the big hotel chains and they have like standard standards committees which means like what's one size fits all. I hate that. Yeah, um, you know, that's sometimes to an advantage, but I think at the same time, um, you know, what we're able to address here is also um, provide people with lots of surprises. So you may go into a room that may feel more like, like an open space plan, that's more like a loft style kind of room. At the same time, you may go into another room that may have more of a private entry and then lets you into the sort of like generously sized bedroom. But the bathroom may be a little smaller than the other one. So each time you stay at the hotel, you may end up, you know, with a different experience. Okay, now we talked about the bathroom. We talked about the actual space you had to work with. What about the light? The light um, has been kind of an interesting challenge because we're trying to accommodate all these different aspects of daily activities, right? So ground floor, obviously, is the reception space and also where people socialize, but it's also transitional. So there we're actually benefiting more from artificial lighting. On the fourth floor, um, you know, we're actually um, sort of like interfacing with Times Square more, but we also wanted to bring in the, uh, the presence of the hotel out to the street level. As you know, Gap has a pretty big presence. So it was hard to overcome that, but um, by providing these light frames all around the perimeter at the windows, we were able to have the hotel presence come out onto the street. What was your biggest surprise? Our biggest surprise was um, actually, well, it's a pleasant surprise. I think the rooftop terrace is a fabulous... See, I knew uh, you were going to say, that's, yeah. what, that's what makes the hotel, I'm Yes, you. exactly. And that's what people are going to gravitate to. Absolutely, and I think it's a, it's a very um, dynamic, entrancing space. And the fact that we have a much smaller interior space and a much more larger you know, wraparound terrace makes the interior space even more, um, you know, powerful. So you get to sneak into the hotel to avoid the craziness Absolutely. outside. Then you get to go to the rooftop bar and yeah. look down on the craziness outside. Exactly. There you go. Keep that going. This is Flight 372 on SWA. The flight attendant's on board serving you today. Teresa in the middle, David in the back. My name is David, and I'm here to tell you that. Shortly after takeoff, first things first, there's soft drinks and coffee to quench your thirst. But if you want another kind of drink, then just holler. Alcoholic beverages will be $4. If a monster energy drink is your plan, that'll be $3, and you get the whole can. We won't take your cash. You got to pay with plastic. If you have a coupon, My next guest, I, I, I think I can call her a regular on our show. Can I call you regular on the show? You can, Peter. Okay. It's a pleasure to be here. You got it. Andy Fitzsimmons, of course, she's my National Geographic girl. She writes the National Geographic Urban Insider, among other things. And uh, last time I saw you was not in New York, but I get to see you here now. So welcome back. Yes, yes. So tell me what's going on with you. First of all, let's talk about this hotel because, you know, in the last four or five years, you know, if you go back five or six years ago, 
there were no hotels opening up in New York. I mean, in fact, there was a room shortage in New York, if you wanted to be clear about it. And all of a sudden, in the last four or five years, boom, they're popping up all over, but not always new builds. Uh, in this situation, we're in a building that was built in 1906 mm-hmm. by John Jacob Astor. It's incredible. Tell yeah, me that. Just yeah. after the subway opened, I think it was 1904. In New York. So it's really, you know, I love the history of New York and to look outside of this building. It's just incredible to look up and see, you know, buildings don't exist like this anymore. And yet when it was first opened, it was only really open for what, 15 years and then prohibition and everything else. No more. And the war. Yeah. So now what turned this around? You know, I think it's a combination of factors, but New York continues to be just this place that people dream about, obsess about, want to get to all over the world. You know, whenever I go anywhere and I say I'm from New York, people have an opinion. And so I think people want to come to the crossroads of the world, Times Square, and see what it's all about. And yet again, 10 or 15 years ago, you couldn't pay me to come to Times Square. And now it's had a complete turnaround. Well, it has. And even as a New Yorker, you know, you don't necessarily want to spend a lot of time here. But it's still exciting. You know, there's the shows. There's these great restaurants here now. You know, in this hotel that's that's opened, you know, it's a great place to hang out. And let's talk about something else that's happened in recent years at a, at a number of hotels that got smart about it. That's called the Rooftop bar you know if you take a look at new york there are probably maybe three other hotels that have great rooftop bars right in places you wouldn't expect mm-hmm. like the surrey up in the upper east side great rooftop or mm-hmm. the peninsula of course classic uh, there's another one there's a hidden one on um uh, it's on uh oh which one is it it's the on, james yes yes there's one there's soho. one uh, down in soho and now this one yeah and it's you know new york of course has what, 10 to 20 perfect days a year? And when, when those perfect days come, you want to be outside and you well, want to be on second. that rooftop. I'll be on a rooftop bar <laughs> when it's not a perfect day because well, you, it's true. Yeah. You know, I can't understand. Okay, let's face it. In, in, in February and March in New York, it's cold. And this year it's been particularly cold. It has been. But you know what? With the, with the right amount of heat lamps out there, I'll be up there if they'll let me up. Yeah. Because the air is crisp and clean and you get the best views. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's really nice. I mean, there's nothing like being outside in New York and feeling the city's energy. I get giddy when I think about it. <laughs> can, can I watch? Yeah, you can. You can, <laughs> Peter. Giddy, giddy, giddy. Okay, thanks. Now, yeah. let's, now let's get serious, serious, serious. Okay. You have hotels that are opening up, but at the same time, there's Airbnb and you know, all the disruptors are out there. Uh, and they call it, what I think is, is pretty funny, is people, oh, they call it the shared economy. There's nothing shared about it. It's just a different form of distribution. It's a different form of access. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's a lot happening with the, you know, what we've heard is the cooperative economy. You know, if you've heard of, have you heard of this company called Eleven James where you can rent watches? No. So you can rent apartments, you can rent, you know, <laughs> people's <laughs> cars, you can rent all sorts of things. And now you can rent watches, right? And sort of luxury watches for a month or two and see what. You know, so basically you like what it. you're allowing to do is, is you're allowing to test drive your watch. Exactly. But you don't have to commit. You don't have to invest. And that's what it's all about in travel and fashion and all these industries. Where does it stop, though? Where does it stop? Yeah, because, for example, there are the kids at MIT who were at the, at the Logan Airport once in, in Boston. They looked out there and they saw 7,000 cars parked in the parking lot. Personal cars of individuals who had gotten off and got on planes to fly. But look, they're all sitting there. Let's take the, the Airbnb concept and apply it to cars. Of course, the rental car companies hated that. Right. But the point is, not everybody wants to have their apartment being lent out or rented out. Not everybody wants to have their car. But if you're driving a 1996 Taurus, you know what? <laughs> Take it out of the lot. Yeah. yeah. Crash it in a wall. Yes. I don't care. You know, I mean, <laughs> well, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, yeah. the point is, there's a market for that now. Well, and it's still, I mean, have you ever had a great car rental experience where you just left and thought, that was so wonderful? I'd have to think. 
Yeah. <laughs> I know. I really have to think. Every once in a while, but it would have to be every once in a millennium, I think. Yeah. No. No. And it's, I mean, it's a lot easier to, to use these share programs sometimes. They just, they're innovative and they make it easier. Well, you know what Avis did last year, which is a very smart defensive move. They went and bought Zipcar. Yeah. Now, if Avis is buying Zipcar, that tells you everything you need to know about the future of the rental car business because they're protecting, you know, they're, they're circling the wagons, if you will. Yeah. Well, and there's things like, you know, of course, Uber and Lyft. But in Uber now, um, you can personalize your music when you get in. So all these personalization things that are happening. How long happening is that drive going to be? Wait a second. Well, in New York, from the Upper West Side to Brooklyn could be a very long time. I love so it. So you, you might as well be listening to your own Spotify account. Well, what's happening with Uber, especially in big cities like New York, is it's diluting uh, the actual financial base of cab companies. It is. Because the other day I was in the Lower East Side at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I needed to get a cab, which of course is hopeless. And it was a friend of mine from CBS said, oh, I'll, I'll Uber one. I said, you'll, well, you'll get an Uber. Great. You know who pulled up? A yellow cab. He was like moonlighting from his own cab company so the meter wasn't on. Wow. Right? He was getting the revenue. So the actual cost of a of a medallion for a New York City cab has gone from a million two down to seven hundred fifty thousand dollars because where's the upside if you can't control distribution if you own the cab company right you can't even right. control, control your own drivers if I'm a limousine company owner the only reason why Annie you would want to drive for me other than my sparkling personality always is, Peter always, always is because I control distribution I give you the clients but with Uber you don't need me you get the clients on your own. So what does that do to the distribution system of rental car companies? What does that do to the distribution of limousine companies? Right? It's it's changing it radically. It is. But it's, you know, it's all about what the consumer wants and needs. It's, it's you know, travel startups in particular. There's vitamins and there's painkillers. You know, there's so many startups that are vitamins. You don't really need them. But Uber was a painkiller, you know? I like the way you describe that. Yeah. Vitamins and painkillers. Vitamins and painkillers. But wait a second. Then there are the heavy sedatives. What? Sorry? <laughs> the oh, heavy, heavy sedatives. sedatives. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Those are good, too. <laughs> uh, spoken from Annie Fitzsimmons, yeah. who's actually quite awake and alive right now. <laughs> What's the biggest change right now in this economy that you're talking about, other than the watch guys? The watch guys, which I love. Um, I just think it's it's people are valuing access over ownership. You know, it's not people don't need to have, you know, own that five to seven million dollar house anymore when they can rent it for a week. And people don't want to commit to a certain place anymore. They want everything. You know, we want everything now. Um, and this is giving us a chance to do that. You know, when you talk about access over ownership, the car companies have to listen to this because when I was a kid, you know, I was a teenager, like most teenagers, all I wanted was a car, mm -hmm. right? Now, that's not necessarily the case with kids who are 16 and 17 and 18. No, and you have to pay for the upkeep and you have to get the oil changed and who wants to do that? You know, that's where Zipcar comes in. If you need one, then you need it for when you need it and that's it. That's it. Wow. For your Ikea trips. So... <laughs> If you go back and look, 15 years ago, Ford Motor Company used to boast that the largest selling car in America was the Ford Taurus. You know why? Because those are the fleet cars that were owned and ordered by the rental car companies. Mm. So they, they made you think that everybody was out buying a Taurus. No, it was Hertz and Avis and National, right? Right, right. Now, what's the largest selling car in America? I can't tell you. because I have no idea. And the numbers have to be coming down because people aren't doing it. Exactly. And more people are moving to cities and you don't need them. And yeah. It's it's a whole you know domino effect. You don't have a car, do you? I do not have a car. See, do you I want have a, a subway pass? Ah, uh, you have a metro card. Yes, I do. Yes, right. I do. But you don't want a car. No, I don't need one. I don't need one. But if you were driving in the country, you might. Yes. But then yes. you rent it. Then I rent it. I mean, rental prices in New York are ridiculous, though. In the summer, it can be well, two hundred and fifty dollars a day. 
Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Our next guest, a regular on a show, and of course a regular contributor on our television show on public television, the travel detective, the editor-in-chief of Travel Weekly, with 15 other titles I'm not going to mention, Arnie Weissman. Hello, Arnie. Hi, Peter. How are you? You know, here we are in New York, which about two years ago had a shortage of rooms, and now a l- number of hotels have come online, including the Knickerbocker, with 330 completely renovated, restored rooms, and they've done a great job, but... The amount that people are paying for hotels right now, I'm talking about the, the buyers of these hotels, is outright staggering. I mean, uh, uh, the most recent example that I knew about, and then you're, you're about to one-up me, I know, is the Waldorf Astoria, which sold to a Chinese conglomerate for, what, $1.4 billion or something? Well, it was $1.4 million a room. A room. A room. A room. I, I, can't, I don't know what the, how much that adds up to. Okay, but you know, it's yeah. interesting. By normal hotel accounting standards, if you spend, as a buyer... million a room when you buy a hotel. That means in order for you to amortize your debt and carry your debt and even try to make a profit after about 10 years, you are expected to charge one-tenth of 1% of what you paid for that room for the room every night to guests. So based on that accounting principle, they have to charge $1,400 a night for a room to make back their money. On, it, absolutely. And that's, of course, it's averaged. Yeah. So the suites are going to be uh, making up for some of the other ones. The, the most recent example that I saw was the Baccarat Hotel across from the uh, Museum of Modern Art in New York, sold for $2 million a room. But it's impossible so for somebody to make money back on that. If the, so $2 million a room means that on average they have to charge about $800 a night. And uh, the, I'm sorry, $1,000 a night. And the... Rooms, the standard rooms are about seven seventy, somewhere in there. But they also have a suite for eighteen thousand a night. Of course. So they they are able to work that uh, accounting magic, and but there's more to it than that. There's a lot of money on the sidelines right now, wanting a safe haven, especially from China, as you mentioned. In fact, the the buyer of uh, the Baccarat was a Chinese insurance company, and the buyer of the Waldorf Astoria was a Chinese company. Yeah. And they are looking for a place to put the money. The U.S. is seen as a safe haven, and real estate is uh, seen as a great bet. So you, you can expect, I think, in the luxury section in particular, to see this going on. And not only that, if you have enough money to buy the Waldorf Astoria and take that so-called gamble, you stand reasonably well assured that someone will always want to buy the Waldorf Astoria. Yes, right, exactly. And what's interesting is with that purchase, they purchased it from Hilton. Hilton still in, manages it in the, for 100 years. They signed a 100-year management contract. So Hilton's doing okay. Well, neither you or, or, nor I will be around to figure out if that's enforceable. <laughs> right. But that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, but what does that do to the actual room rates across the board? Because there's a rising tide there. Right. It's, it's a, it's for example, but, if, if you sell the L.A. Clippers for an outrageous sum, which they did, Right. To Balmer, right? Right. That means the value of all the other NBA teams has to go up in the process. The economics, though, are different because the hotels are so regionally driven with supply and demand that if you're going to buy a hotel in New York, you're going to be able to pay a lot more per room than you are if you're going to buy one in Omaha. And the way that the, the risk that all of these 
uh, companies are taking is they're buying they're, in New York also it's a real estate place so they have some protection there you, you've got a brand Waldorf Astoria you've got protection there but as we have seen when there's a recession when there's a uh, crash of, of the luxury market boy does it fall and does it fall hard so it's not risk free no it's not but I want to see if they're going to be able to fill all those rooms at nine hundred dollars a night. Yeah, it, it depends. I think New York, you've got is is it the safest bet of all, uh, and it's unusual when a high luxury, high end luxury hotel comes on the market. It's going to get a premium. There are a lot of brands that aren't in New York that look at themselves as luxury, and they are looking for every opportunity. And you remember uh, Jumara, which is a Dubai based hotel. Luxury they bought the company. Essex House. They bought the Essex House, and it didn't work. And you know why? It basically wasn't as luxury. It didn't fit the brand. It was not quite up to the Jamara standards. Part of it. Wow. Part of the reason, certainly. Interesting. And they sold it. Yes. Back to, to JW Marriott, which is actually, I think, a good match for the brand with that property. Wow. Now, there's another way to look at this in, in, in terms of what it's going to cost our listeners to stay at some of these hotels, not just in New York, but around the world. I'm one of those people who looks at where the dollar is stronger these days. And where the dollar is stronger might surprise people. The euro has dropped considerably. Uh, of course, you have the Argentinian peso, not in great shape. Uh, the Australian dollar dropping. Yeah. Uh, Even the Canadian loon right. is coming, going down. But let's take, let's take Europe, for example, because the mistake that people make often is they say, oh, the euro the euro's dropped, so I'm going to get a bargain at the hotel. No, you're not. Uh, I based what the real cost of travel is on basic goods and services that the locals would pay for. A tube of toothpaste, a taxi ride, a, 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 you know, a bottle of shampoo. Those things, you can gauge... What a tube of toothpaste costs in Caracas to realize that the, that the standard of living there is so, uh, not the standard, but the cost of living there is so low, it makes sense to stay there, even if you're paying higher for a hotel room. But my experience, Arnie, you tell me if it's yours, is that when you have a drop in currency valuation like you've seen in Europe, the hotels will adjust for their foreign guests to about, about the same rate you were paying before. Yeah, and a lot of that is actually driven by uh, tour operators and the convention and meetings business. So they, they require, in order for the hotel room prices to go up, they need what they call compression, which is they need to fill up a lot of those rooms that they have through either a convention or a meeting or a, bit, a contract with a tour operator. Uh, but what you're seeing is something really interesting in terms of the value of the European vacation. You would think with all of these, uh, with the strength of the dollar, that you might get a break, but almost all of it is going to be erased in the airfare. The airfares are not showing any weakness, and the price of oil is in U.S. dollars. So it's it's not uh, even though the the, the it's price not a of oil market for us. no no, and the price of oil is dropping, but the airlines are stuck in the old hedging, and you're not seeing the prices drop. Now here we are doing the show from a newly opened hotel. The Knickerbocker has great history, 330 rooms. This is the time for them to open because the demand is there. Yeah, yeah. This is this is a they are. The U.S. economy, from everything that I've heard in terms of economists speaking, is in actually very good shape. I think what you're going to see is uh, the unemployment, of course, has been going down. It's now at a point where I think everybody feels comfortable, and you're going to start seeing wages increase. You're going to see uh, it's not going to be like the type of inflation anyone has to worry about, but it does mean that you're going to see some rise in prices, and it's going to impact 
travel. But for the short term, though, there's a lot more money that's been on the sidelines that's coming back in, and people like to spend it on travel. This hotel is not going to have to struggle like, as it might have had to struggle back in 2009. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And what's interesting is that, you know, everything crashed, and there were people who were putting their Rolls Royces in the car, in the garages for a while because they didn't want to be seen as being conspicuous in their luxury consumption. But the luxury sector came back fastest of all the different hospitality sectors when the recession after the recession. In other words, people could could for a little while kind of hold back if they had the money, hold back that urge to spend it. It wasn't seeming appropriate, but boy, they were the first to say, "Okay, I, I, I've had enough. I've, I've been sitting on the sideline for a little bit. I'm back." And if you talk about location, a location where we are right now, right in the middle of Times Square, 15 years ago, people would say, "I'm not staying there." Uh-huh. Now Times Square has turned around. Yeah. No, I mean, New York, in general, this, what's interesting is that a lot of the brands are having a hard time keeping their brands on uh, independently owned hotels in New York because it is such a uh, seller's market that if they are smart in the way that they, uh, in search engine optimization, they don't need the brand for distribution. Riding along in my automobile, my baby beside me at the wheel. And playing the radio with no particular place to go. Audible.com has more than a hundred and fifty thousand titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. My next guest is big if you want to go to a website called girl, <laughs> girlahead.com. How about that for an introduction? A very old friend of the show and a very old friend of mine, uh, one of the great journalists out there in the world of travel, Mary Gostolo. Hello, Mary. Hi, Peter. Great to be back. Yeah, so tell me this. I mean, we've seen such quantum change in a short amount of time in the travel industry. Uh, we've seen you know, resilience that I haven't seen in any other business, bouncing back from, from, from tough economies. Uh, but I've also seen a focus now on trying to, to and, and part of that's probably helped by technology, where they can re- recover quickly enough to realize this is what people want, let's give it to them. Yes? Absolutely true, and what is happening is that Uh, one place goes up and another place goes down. Now, interestingly, uh, if we can take Greece as an example, I was back in Greece only two weeks ago, and it was as though nothing had ever happened. I stayed in the Grand Britannia, absolutely adored it, and I also stayed in the adjacent King George, which is now run by the Grand Britannia. By the way, speaking of the Grand Britannia, I encourage everybody to go up to their bar on the top. Oh, their bar? Talk about at night, at night, oh, that view. The view is fantastic, and if you want a really lovely view, take the top suite of the King George right next door, also a member of Star Wars Luxury Collection. You have the top floor all to yourself of the King George right overlooking Syntagna, but you have an infinity edge swimming pool up there, and you feel as though you could just put your arm out and touch the Acropolis. Or if you can't afford that, just go get a drink at the bar. That's it. That would be another (laughs) jolly good way of doing it. So Greece is actually on the up again. It has been discovered by Russian travelers in a really big way, but 
uh, Greece's figures for 2014 were in fact about what Greece was seeing in 2007 and 2015 looks even better and I would also recommend head for the Peloponnese there's a most amazing resort there Costa Navarino which now has its own racetrack car racing track so to tell speak. me more tell me more yeah so you can borrow a, a, a vehicle and drive around it at speed whatever you want to do it's amazing you know what and, i love that idea wow yeah. and bumper ob cars <laughs> obviously there's also golf and and there are lots of lovely beaches i am fascinated by for instance how uh, egypt is also on the uh, on the surge again but, but interestingly enough i mean let's be honest they had nowhere to go but up that is true but never mind start from somewhere but they are doing very very well um, the Middle East, the last thing I heard, unfortunately, is just down a little bit, but it, it, in a way, they were rising so fast. It's rather like the Chinese economy. You can take a little dip, but you're still actually rising compared with the rest of the world. And you know, Peter, I think in today's world, everybody knows what's going on. And one thing, one little bit of news can deter people from going to a place. Well, the fear, well, the fear factor can never yeah. be ignored, especially among American travelers who are so scared about everything. You know, in the last, well, I'll take this back. In the last year and a half, I can't think of a time that I wasn't heading for the airport to go somewhere, didn't matter where, where my friends who I think are reasonably intelligent and well-read and somewhat global in their perspective didn't always say to me, be careful, or are you nuts? No, I'm not nuts. My answer to that is, People are actually nuts getting in the car to go around the corner to a grocery store because you never know when somebody might come round to the corner in the opposite direction straight into you. Every day one is nuts and, pe and, people, who are and people who travel and enjoy traveling, and I'm traveling as you know, Peter, about 300 days a year, almost as much as you. Um, I am considered just totally crazy by everybody. Why do I want to go through airport security? And by the way, the worst airport security I have on a regular basis is unfortunately my home airport, London Heathrow. I could not agree more. Oh, good. I give myself an additional 30 minutes, not just to stand in line, but to get through the security once I start because my bags are always taken out. You know, every time, and and I, I can't I can't help it. And what I don't understand is, if I'm changing planes in London, I've already cleared security somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Why do I have to do it again? And and you know what that means? I know what it means. It means that the the, the, the British authorities are saying they don't trust the security anywhere else, and, and they don't want anything to happen on their watch. I don't think it's the security authorities. I think it's the um, employees, the team leaders. They seem to be employing to me very unsociable people who are getting their own back on society. It doesn't happen anywhere else. However, okay, so we put ourselves into a metal tube. At least we have uh, windows at the moment. I, I dread <laughs> the thought of flying in planes that deliberately have no windows. That, and that's coming, by the way. That's They're coming. talking about yeah. it to save valuable money and also save uh, weight. But one's crazy because one travels, you know, very English to say one, I shall say I. I travel because I love it and I'm passionate about what I'm going to find at the other end. For instance, I don't know when uh, you were asked in uh, Lebanon, but I'm hearing great things about it again. Me too. And, and it's always been a place with masses of history. And it is not only surviving, but this great resilience comes up through the whole travel experience.
Where are the wagons? The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own? Bobbing about between my legs. My guest now is someone who reminded me we've met many times before. In fact, most notably at Sea Island in Georgia. Amazing resort there. And he's made the transition from there to here, from a big sea resort location in Georgia to the heart of Times Square at the Knickerbocker, Chef Cliff Denny. How are you, sir? Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So that is a, that's almost a traumatic change, if you will, from, from a you know, huge resort where space is just never-ending to the tight quarters of New York. Yeah, after leaving Sea Island, it was a massive kitchen. We had like 10,000 square feet of a kitchen there and many, many kitchens. But um, then I left there and went to the Caribbean, which had a massive great kitchen down there as well. But like, yeah, it's a bit of a transition there to move into. Right. But you know what? There's the, other, there's the other philosophy that says you expand to fill the space you're given. But if you're given a smaller space, you're actually more organized. Yeah, a lot, lot, lot less staff as well. So yeah, it's pretty good. It's like being on a submarine a little bit. You know, I used to go on the submarines down in Sea Island at the Kings Bay, so we used to do a lot with the, uh, the Navy down there. And by the way, nobody eats better in the Navy than the guys who work on the submarines because they got to keep them happy. I tell you what, those chefs are well respected on those boats. They really are. Yeah. So what did you bring from your history at Sea Island here to New York in terms of the cuisine? Well, the cuisine's really, so a lot of it's from Charlie, you know. From Charlie Char Char Charlie's vision is, you know, very progressive American, so... Um, you know, he's uh, sort of set the boundaries and what we're doing. I mean, we're growing into a lot of little things which we're changing up. You know, like, you know, we have like a little scotch steak here, you know, a little bit of my sort of food, not so much. But, um, yeah, it's, you know, we're doing, you know, Charlie's healthy cuisine approach to the style of food here. All right, so let's, just, let's define healthy. Yeah, well, we have like um, a simply grilled options on the menus. Um, we have like you know, uh, salmon, Scottish salmon we bring in. Um, we're doing paillard of chicken, paillard steaks. Okay, so let's talk about the concept of simply grilled. Because if I'm going to go to dinner, and I don't think I'm too different from most other people in this respect, I don't need to be wowed by all the separate sauces and all the stuff that they're going to put on the plate. If I'm going to order a swordfish or a salmon, simply grilled is not bad. Yeah, no, we have that on a special menu. It's our little box. We have, I say, we do three or four different types of grilled veg. We have the fish or the piece of meat completely clean, just seasoned, no sauce, just a bit of basil oil, and that's it. And a little olive oil, probably, too. Yeah, that's it. It's all in there. Just, it's cooked in olive oil, but seasoned up with basil oil. Are you oil. cooking everything in olive oil these days? No, not everything. We've got a bit of everything. Yeah, we, I say, <laughs> we're not that healthy yet, you know, so. <laughs> you know what? That should be your motto in front of the restaurant. We're not that healthy yet. Yeah, we're not that healthy yet. we still got to do uh, some fun stuff as well. And we all know the fun okay, stuff is Okay, give me the fun stuff. Yeah, I say, we got, like, some uh, duck nuggets, which we confit some duck legs. Duck and, nuggets? Yeah, this is really cool, actually. It's, uh, so we get the duck legs, we cure them overnight, and then we, like, um... You cure them in what? We, we salt, pepper, bit of a uh, dill, marjoram, brandy, juniper, and we put some orange peel on there. Then we like uh, cure them overnight. Then we cook them like for t eight to twelve hours, depending on how thick they are. Like slow confit cooking their own oil, and then we pick them, we blend them, then we cut them out into little like cutters, like nuggets. Then like we, nuggets. There we, we go. And then we deep fry them, and we serve them with like a hoisin orange sauce. So, yeah. Wow. It's pretty cool. And then we get the skin, we get a rendered skin, and we uh, deep fry that so you get crunchy, like crackling on top of it. So basically what you're saying is you're not that healthy yet. That's the one. <laughs> 
But we have our, we have our healthy options, you know. What's the one thing on your menu that would be a big surprise to me? A big surprise to you? I'm still planning the limits of you know what we're doing. We, we, we're sort of you know trying to find our feet still being an opening, you know. Um, but like we're really going out. Like one of the biggest sellers we're we're pushing out at the moment is our scotched eggs. We've got these little quail eggs. You know, like coming from England, you have the big scotched eggs. Right. But we're using the little quail ones. We're making our little meats, rolling them up and frying them. Then we serve them with like a, a Dijon aioli. With oh, that a, sounds really with good. With some uh, pancetta, like some rendered pancetta. And then we finish it off with some popcorn shoots. So, so yeah, it works out really well. It's not healthy though. See, I love the way you, you described it as, we do this, 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 and then we deep fry them. <laughs> yeah, you got deep fry it. <laughs> So I have to ask the obvious question. How are the French fries? French fries are good. Yeah, we, we use the same French fries that they use at Oriole. And everyone raves about the French fries at Oriole. So they're across the street. Our truffle fries? Nope. Nope. Just regular Parmesan fries? fries? Nope. Just regular. <laughs> That's all been done. Everyone does that. So you're just doing the regular? We're just doing regular. Okay. Regular fries. We do like popcorns. We do, we do vinegar popcorn at the bar. You know, like a popcorn snack. Really? Yeah. Of course, you know what that means if you do vinegar popcorn at the bar. I drink more. Yes, exactly what you mean. I know exactly what you're doing. That's what you got to do. You're such a sneak. Make him thirsty. <laughs> Have some more popcorn. That's the spirit. Let yep. me guess, is the popcorn on the house? Yep. Of it's course it house. is. Of course it is. Of course. It's a bar snack. That's free. We give that to you. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. Hey, Prime members, Peter Greenberg here. You can listen to Ion Travel ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. And you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. And before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths. And where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used. Because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx slash you know. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer. But he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams. American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus.